0: It's been great to know you, and thanks for all that you contributed to us in the time that you were here. This morning, I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about beginning our um, series for the summer on the book of Daniel. And, uh, you know, we've had this theme about how God-first people are able to live hope-filled lives. And probably the number one reason, primarily, that we can live hope-filled lives is because God has chosen to reveal to us what's coming in the future. Uh, God is a God of prophecy, and he lays it out. And Daniel, in the Old Testament, is really like the backbone of the Bible's prophecy. There are many sections of scripture which are given uh, to prophecy, and probably Daniel is like the backbone of all of those. Even Jesus refers to Daniel's words uh, in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 24. And so you know, uh, historically, that God created the nation of Israel right out of a promise that he made to Abraham. And um, the nation of Israel started out, as you know, as a group of slaves in the country of Egypt. And when God uh, delivered and turned those slaves into a nation, uh, he gave them um, a special land, uh, what we call today the land of Israel, uh, even though uh, the land that we define as Israel today is smaller than the original land that God gave. And then God promised that he would give them a special future, And um, there are a number of places that we could turn to uh, and so forth, but one of the unique things about the promise that God made is that this nation, the nation of Israel, would never end, never end. In um, 2 Samuel, for example, chapter 7, um, and verse 23, 24, um, who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, Making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself uh, the people of Israel to be your people forever. And you, O oh Lord, became their God. If you uh, fast forward a little bit to uh, verse 29. Uh, Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, David, uh, so that it may continue forever before you. O Lord God, you have spoken, and your blessing shall be the house of your servant uh, be blessed forever. There's a promise that God made to this particular nation that that nation is going to last forever. However, uh, on the way out of Egypt and into this great promised land that God gave, um, God Uh, came to these people and he made a deal he made a covenant really uh, the art of the deal is really the bible you should read the bible if you really want to know the art of the deal and um, if you go uh, again uh, back to where God made this uh, deal this covenant with his people um, he promised to be their God and to bless them in so many different ways Uh, but they in turn uh, were to be his people and they were to live his way, and they were to live for his purposes. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 28, for example, uh, God kind of reiterated what he said back in Exodus, and he said, you know, if you will faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the other nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you. And they will overtake you if you will obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, uh, the fruit of the ground, the fruit of your cattle, uh, the increase of your herds, the young flock, blessed, and on and on it goes. Verse 15, but, God said, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, if you're going to blow me off, If you're going to refuse me, if you're going to ignore me, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and all his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses are going to come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be in the basket and in your kneading bowl. Cursed shall you be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock and so on and so forth. Skip on down to verse 32. Uh, Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. If you blow me off, if you refuse, your sons and your daughters will be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, and you'll be helpless. It's going to kill you, and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Okay? A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all your labors, and you shall be oppressed and crushed continually. Just think, holocaust. You know, uh, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you as a nation that neither you nor the fathers have known. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you've set over you, and uh, there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the people where the Lord will lead you. I'm going to scatter you over the nations of the world and so on. Um, verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Because of the abundance of all things, and therefore you'll serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in lacking in everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Uh, verse 40, 64. Gee, these verses get smaller these numbers, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known, and among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, for the Lord uh, will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul, um, the art of the deal. God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're going to be my special people. There's never going to be a nation like you. I'm going to give you this special land. I'm going to drive out people in gods, and it's going to be yours, and it's going to be yours forever and so forth. If you listen to me, uh, I will bless the tar out of you. But if you blow me off, right, and you refuse me, then all of these horrible things will come against you. And that was the deal. And when God originally proposed this deal uh, back in Exodus chapter 19, um, You yourselves, Exodus 19, uh, verse 4 and 5, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, God's telling Moses. So verse 7, Moses came and he called all the elders of the people before him and uh, all these words of the Lord that the Lord commanded him, he spoke to them. Verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Everything the Lord says, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people uh, back to the Lord and so forth. And Verse 20, chapter 24 and verse 7, uh, kind of a reiteration of this. Uh, then he took the book of the covenant, he read it in the hearing of the people, and all the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. We'll do it. So you keep reading the rest of the Old Testament, and you read, they didn't. We will, but we didn't. We will. You ever do this? You ever say, I will, and then don't? And that's basically the story of the Old Testament. We will, but they didn't. They didn't do what the Lord said. They forgot their promise. Bit by bit, they abandoned God's word. Over the years, they compromised and compromised and compromised to the point where they were doing the opposite of what God called them to do. Fewer and fewer people took God seriously, and God began to warn them. He began to send prophets who would say to them, "Repent, who would coach them to, to repent, to turn around, to stop it, uh, to turn back, and to keep god 's word, and the prophets would warn that there would be a takeover of the land if they didn 't repent. Um, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniels, and in Jeremiah chapter twenty five God sends Jeremiah to warn them, listen In verses 8 and 9, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, which was basically what Assyria was made of, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who eventually took over Assyria, my servant, notice what he says, the king of Babylon, this pagan nation, my servant, And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and I will make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Chapter 27, verses 6 and 7. Now I have given all of these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him all the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him. And his son and his grandson until the time of his, of his own land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Notice he calls Babylon his servant. God's going to use uh, Babylon as his servant. And so sure enough, after King David and after King Solomon die, they were the, you know, was the height of Israel's uh, life as a nation. Ten of the twelve tribes uh, broke away. Uh, basically because the son of Solomon, who became king, imposed tremendous taxes, you know, and uh, so the ten tribes broke away from the southern uh, two tribes, and uh, the northern tribes were known as Israel, and the southern two tribes were known as Judah, and uh, that's where Jerusalem was located in the south, and so um, that's the tribe that Jesus was to come from and is extremely significant so in 605 um, BC, 600 years before Jesus, before Christmas, 600 years before uh, Jesus comes, uh, the Babylonian Empire, uh, which is located in modern-day Iraq, about 50 miles south of uh, Baghdad is where the capital Babylon was, um, and uh, they came and they conquered Judah and uh, finished off the whole nation of Israel. And uh, Babylon, the word Babylon, uh, is actually uh, mentioned over 300 times in the scriptures. And um, Babylon, if Jerusalem is the city of God, Babylon is the city of Satan. Uh, All the way to Revelation, Babylon is mentioned. And it's this conflict all the time between the city of God, Jerusalem, and the city of Satan, if you will, or the city of rebellion uh, around which so much of scripture is written. Uh, Babylon, the city, you know, represents... Uh, Pagan religion, uh, a lot of the occult, astrology, it's where the Tower of Babel was to reach the stars, where astrology is thought to begin. It's the beginning of big government, and it was established by a great grandson of Noah's named Nimrod, and uh, he was an evil person, and uh, you can read about all of that, but um, the truth is that Babylon came and captured Judah, and that's where we meet Daniel. It's at that point that Daniel uh, comes into the picture. And uh, Daniel is an outstanding young man. He's uh, a remarkably uh, mature uh, young man. Most people feel he was about 14 or 15 years old when we meet him at the beginning of the book of Daniel. So he was a teenager, if you will, Uh, but he's already a God first person. He's a teenager who's already made his uh, commitment to God. Uh, His name, Daniel, means God is my judge. God is my judge. So he obviously had uh, believing parents. And uh, his parents named him Daniel, which means, you know, God is my judge. And so you just think about that. Uh, He was a teenager who made up his mind to spend his life uh, responding to God's initiatives in his direction. And so his whole life is one of being a servant leader of the living God. And uh, he's a great example for people to follow. In um, Daniel chapter 9... Uh, Daniel is praying, and um, the angel Gabriel actually comes and speaks to him. Daniel is, uh, there's a a lot of prophecy in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel uh, comes to him while he's praying. And uh, I'd like you to just notice what the angel says in Daniel 9, verse 23, about Daniel, um, because uh, you'll find this as a theme Um, here's what he said in verse 23, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, at the beginning of your prayer, a word went out and I, uh, Gabriel have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved and therefore consider the word and understand the vision. You are greatly loved. And as a result of that, God is going to reveal the future to you. Consider the vision, try to understand it and so on. Uh, When you go to the next uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 11, and uh, we read uh, the same kind of thing in verse 11. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, uh, for now I've been sent to you. Again, there's going to be a special revelation about the future to Daniel. Uh, Verse 19, and he said, O man greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage, and so forth. Greatly loved. In chapter 12, in verse, well, let me just uh, make a comment here. Daniel is greatly loved. And can I tell you, you are greatly loved. Daniel was greatly loved, and God rewarded his love for Daniel by revealing the future to him. And you are greatly loved, and one of the ways that God rewards us when he loves us, is that he allows us to understand the future. He reveals what's coming because it fills our lives with hope. If we have confidence that God is sovereign and he can do what he says, and if we trust him, uh, that's where hope begins to rise inside of our lives, and we become hope-filled people, optimistic people in the face of whatever comes our way over the course of our lifetime. And so um, that's what God did. He revealed to Daniel uh, the future of the nation of Israel and the future of all the nations of the world. And when we get into this uh, over the course of the summer, uh, you'll be fascinated. But here's the interesting thing. At the very end of God's dealing with Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, and this uh, book of Daniel spans you know his whole life, and it spans the 70 years' captivity and on beyond that when uh, the Medes and the Persians come and take over the Babylonians, And Cyrus becomes the king. And so it goes beyond even the time that Israel was, uh, you know, deported into Babylon. But in verse 9, he's finishing up this revelation about the future. And and look what it says. Uh, He said, now go your way, Daniel. Go about your business. For the words that I've spoken to you are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. The words that God spoke to Daniel way back, like 25, 2,600 years ago, okay, uh, are, are shut up. They're not going to be able to be understood for a long time until we get to the days of the end. And when we get to the days of the end, people, you know, if you believe that we're in the days of the end, we're much obviously much closer than Daniel was 2,600 years ago. And then there's going to be a progressive revelation. The thing about the Bible is it's loaded with prophecy, and as history unfolds, one of the ways that we know that this is the word of God is that history reveals exactly what God said was going to happen happens. And so as we get closer to the end, at least in my opinion, one of the things that's emerged in like our generation, our time, that's very relevant, it seems to me, in terms of end times, is Islam. You know, 50 years ago, people didn't pay a whole lot of attention to Islam. But today, Islam and terrorism and all the rest of it is in the news day in and day out. I couldn't help but think, uh, as we were singing this morning, you know, about how powerful Jesus' name is and and Jesus is everything and so forth. And uh, on my way to church this morning, I passed that congregational church in Bridgeport with a crescent on its steeple. And I think, what happened to Jesus' name in that church? That it's now a mosque. And that is happening all over Europe. What about the name of Jesus? That's so powerful. What's happening? And one of the end time things that we can begin to understand and probably read Daniel differently than a generation ago is that when you take the names that are all strange to us and they don't make any sense and you study them, and you try to ferret out what countries are being talked about, you discover that the original countries were what today we would call Iran and Iraq and all of the uh, Islamic countries that are around the nation of Israel. And all of a sudden, the interpretation of these things that God revealed starts to make a whole new level of sense to the people as we approach uh, end times. And so it's very interesting to me that at the very end of Daniel, you know, Uh, God is saying part of the book of Daniel is not going to be able to be understood. And then the very next verse there in that passage, it says, you know, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. And then many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. Four times in the Bible, it says people who are wise will understand end times. They're all located in the book of Daniel. Four times, the Bible says, people who are wise will be able to understand as we approach the end times what's going on. We'll be able to interpret uh, the times in which we live. It's wise. And it's the people who will be prepared to be able to deal with what's coming our way uh, are the people who understand and who are wise right and so but I'm getting way ahead of myself here I'm starting at the wrong end of Daniel so if we go back to Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 where we can pick up that in uh, well let me just read the first verse in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it 606 605 BC started in 606 went over into 605 If you read Jeremiah carefully, he says 606, here it's 605, and so you think, well, there's a discrepancy in the Bible, it doesn't agree, no, 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 it started in one year, and it lasted till the uh, next year, and so forth, Um, and in verse 2, what happens? So Nebuchadnezzar comes, uh, takes over uh, Jerusalem, besieges it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. So one of the first things Nebuchadnezzar does is he goes to the temple, you know, and he takes the gold that's there and he brings it into his God's house, his God's place, which would symbolize for the Babylonians that our gods stronger than the God of the Jews. Our God is stronger than your God because we won. We got into a fight. We took over and uh, we captured your gold and so forth. It symbolized that the Babylonians thought their God was stronger uh, and superior to the God of the Jews. But please notice uh, the very first part of that verse in verse 2 where it says, um, The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was just being used as a pawn. He was the servant of God in the discipline of God's people. And so uh, sometimes we look at things and we think, wow, Satan's winning the game here. Because he's, you know, it seems like he's having a field day. And, we're, and we don't quite understand that. and We're like, you know, what, what's going on? And often I think it's that God is allowing um, his enemies to do his dirty work, if you will. Um, God was just using the Babylonians uh, to discipline his own people. And by the way, it says there that he brought, uh, you know, the vessels to the land of Shinar. Uh, Shinar and Babylon are interchangeable as words. Uh, Shinar sort of referred to a fertile plain that was between the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, where the Garden of Eden was thought to be. And uh, Babylon was right on the edge of that fertile plain. And so uh, the Bible will use Shinar and uh, Babylon interchangeably. Um, But anyway, um, Nebuchadnezzar was... um, While he was down there taking over Jerusalem, uh, word came to him that his father died. And so he left, and uh, he went to be crowned king of the whole Babylonian empire uh, during that time. And um, as a result of that, he came back later and finished the job twice. There was two more invasions, if you will. And archaeologists have actually found tablets that, um, outside of the Bible's record, uh, that verify all of these dates and, and exactly what happened. It's really uh, kind of interesting to see what archaeologists have come up with that uh, give credibility to what the Bible says. Uh, this uh, book of Daniel, twelve times more than twelve times in the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel claims to be the author of it. Now, some people dispute because it's got prophecy in it that speaks about the future, and people who deny God's ability to do that disclaim uh, Daniel as the author. But 12 times uh, Daniel is cited as the author. And again, this book spans the whole captivity of Israel, 70 years. Uh, But here's what's extremely significant about this, uh, these first couple of verses. Extremely significant. This is the beginning of the domination of the Gentiles over the land that God gave to Israel. From this point forward, Gentile nations dominate the land that God promised to the nation of Israel. And this is why there's so much conflict even today over the land of Israel. Uh, You know, right, that our uh, president's son-in-law has been in Israel this past week to go negotiate a peace. Good luck with that. It's really not going to happen until Jesus comes back. And so um, this piece of land has been disputed for a long, long time, and it begins right here. Ever since the Babylonians took the Jews and brought them, the Jews have been scattered around the world. Uh, But again, in all of that time, the miraculous thing is the Jewish people have not lost their identity. And it's not until 1948 that the Jewish people were once again recognized and given a nation. As the result of World War II and the Holocaust and all the suffering, the whole world had sympathy and came together, and just as God said, he reestablished the nation of Israel in 1948. And there are significant prophecies about all of that. Uh, But again, this land is still uh, being contested. But if you have any doubt that the Bible, uh, if you doubt the veracity of the fact that the Bible is God's word, just read what God says in the Bible about Israel and study the nation of Israel's history, and you will be 100% convinced that the scriptures really are uh, the word of God. And uh, this is just the beginning of this Gentile domination in response to Israel's sin, just as God said would happen. And, um, okay, so verse 3 and 4, uh, when we pick this up. Um, then the king, um, Nebuchadnezzar, right, commanded uh, Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, without blemish, of good appearance, and skilled in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So the king says, you know, uh, I want my chief guy to go and to pick out uh, some of the best young people in the nation of Israel or in the land of Judah and uh, bring them back home and prepare them to serve Uh, his purposes and in his courts and so one of the best ways right to keep a king in line when you're a rival king you know you come conquer the king one of the best ways to get that king to do what you want him to do in his land is you just take some of his kids right you hold them hostage so you take some of his kids you bring them back to Babylon and now you tell this king what you want him to do and he knows that you've got his kids and so uh, from the nobility and so forth and, and so that's what he does. Daniel and his three friends, we meet here, and they're among the people that are taken. And again, you notice the qualification. Look for youths without blemish, good-looking kids, okay, uh, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Um, there was a plan. They were going to take these kids the cream of the crop, and they're going to eventually serve in the king's palace and serve the king's purposes. And so Daniel, think about this. He's 14, 15, maybe 16 years old, and uh, he's already committed his life uh, to God. He knows that God is his judge. That's what his name means. And uh, now he has to go and live in a pagan environment. He has to be put in a situation that's 100% against what God is for. He's going to go live in Babylon. And uh, he's going to be given an education that's going to be anti-God. He's going to be taken away from his family, away from his church group, his temple group, away from his, you know, uh, the majority of his support system, away from his education, and he's going to be put in a secular college. This is, he's given the equivalent, it's a three-year program that the king sets him into. It's like the equivalent of a college education, and it's going to be completely against God. It's going to be anti-God. It's going to be a godless worldview. And um, he's, going to, um, he's going to be indoctrinated with the ways of the world instead of the ways of God, uh, the equivalent of a college education with an attempt to brainwash him. Now, that's not a whole lot different than the kids who are growing up in the church today. We take these kids, we raise them the best we can in God's truth and in God's word, We raise them in a church community, we send them off to college, and they get indoctrinated in what? The ways of the world, right? They're challenged. Everything they've learned about what God is for, they're challenged to be against. It's a form of mind control, if you will. And um, you know, when you think about this, uh, I think it becomes kind of significant for us to think that um, ministry should be focused on young people. If by the age of 15, we're going to find out as we read the story of Daniel, if by the age of 15 a kid is locked in and he knows that God is his judge and he's already made that commitment to God, bring on the world and watch Daniel deal with it. It's pretty interesting when you follow this out along those lines to think about how Daniel was able to deal with this and how significant it is uh, to have this early education in the things of God. And uh, I think when a church focuses on the mature say, you know, it doesn't matter to me as much as what goes into the lives of the kids. And so when it's time to make a budget, or when it's time to pick music, or when it's time to pick how it is that we're going to communicate through this modern technology or not, you know, kind of thing, if we can't accommodate to come alongside and sacrifice what's important maybe to us as the Mormontor who've had more time with God for the sake of the younger people so that they can be established by the time they leave and so forth. Uh, I think we do a, a disservice uh, to them. And so I think there are a number of things that are implied by all of this. In um, Luke, Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter um, 17 and verse 2, you know, Jesus said a really harsh thing. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, one time Jesus said, Uh, It would be better uh, for a person to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into Long Island Sound, okay, than that that person should cause one of these little ones to stumble coming to me. Better, Better for this person to be drowned in the sound than to be the reason that some little kid can't find his way to God. Ah, That's pretty harsh, don't you think? That's pretty intense. And so, you know, we got all these kids coming to church, and they're looking at us like we're the examples here for them to follow. They're looking at us to see, do we really mean it when we come together and worship? Are we really psyched about this? Are we on time, you know? Do we... Uh, not miss unless we're away or something. Or, you know, are we intense? Are we looking in our Bibles and following that along and shaking our heads yes or no or whatever? The kids are watching. And it's important for us. VBS starts this week, right, tomorrow, tomorrow night. If you have grandkids or kids that are, you know, in VBS age range, man, it's important. Get, them, get the word of God into them as early as possible. Because why? Because the world is going to be hostile. And um, counted as a privilege. And so look at the strategy that they had in Babylon. Look at this, verse 5. Uh, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. We're going to give these kids the best that we have to offer. That was their strategy. We're going to win their loyalty. We're going to give them you know, the best that we have. They're going to be captives, but they're not going to know it. They're going to love us. And the um, daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Okay? And so that's the plan. And I think about that. You know, captives. Most captives don't expect much when they're in captivity. Look at that guy, Otto Warmbier. Northern Iraq. Comes back in a coma and dies a couple days later. Not the Babylonians. They're going to win his loyalty, the, the loyalty of these four kids uh, that uh, came. You know? And so verse 6 and 7, look what happens here. Um, give them the best of the food, the best of the wine. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and uh, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. They were all from Judah. And uh, the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Mishiak and uh, Azariah, he called Abednego. If you want to change, names meant somebody. You know, in the ancient world, um, names were more than just a label. Names meant something. Um, names were characteristics of your personality. Uh, names described you. They described who you were loyal to. Uh, names were very significant in the ancient world. And uh, all four of these young men had... Um, You know, Hebrew names. Uh, For example, um, in the Bible, the name Abraham means father of nations. Remember God changed his name to Abraham? Father of nations. And um, the name um, Solomon comes from uh, the Hebrew word shalom. And uh, in Solomon's reign, there was total peace in the nation of Israel. Remember, that's when he built the temple and so forth. Uh, I might tell you that the name David, which I don't understand why people don't name their kid David... David means beloved, right? I remind my wife every once in a while when I'm in trouble. I say, what's the name of the person that you married? What does that say about him? He needs to be loved, you know? And uh, so on. But anyway, um, these four uh, men had, four teenagers had Hebrew names. And the Hebrew names stood for something. They meant something. And so if you're going to redefine somebody, if you're going to try to uh, indoctrinate them or uh, blow their minds, uh, you just rename them. It's almost like giving a nickname. When I, you know, my last name is DeVries, right? And so when I was a kid, uh, somehow I picked up the nickname Debris. Debris. That's what they would call me, Debris. And I can remember at one point, you know, it really kind of started to annoy me. And I realized I had to decide, you know, was I going to stick with David, loved by God, or Debris, garbage? It was really helpful for me because, I, I mean, I really had to make that choice. Who am I? What's my identity? And, um, you know, it was a very clearly defined, like, wow, who are you? What does God say about you? And so forth. And so the name Daniel means God is my judge, right? And um, if you notice the name Daniel, at the very end of Daniel is E-L. E-L is a Hebrew word for God. Dan, Yael. And uh, El Elyon, you know, uh, the... God of all gods. Um, So the Hebrew word, uh, uh, El, was right in Daniel's name, the name for God, and uh, it meant, you know, God is my judge. And so can you imagine the influence on Daniel in his life as he grew up thinking, God is my judge. God is the one I live for. God is the one I answer to. God is the one who I will give an account to for my life. God is my judge, right? And Daniel grew up with that. And so if you want to get rid of that, Uh, which the Babylonians did. They rename him. They give him a nickname, if you will. They call him Belshazzar, and uh, Belshazzar means um, this is a person that Bel favors or protects. Bel was a Babylonian god, okay? And then they do the same to the other three kids, Um, Hananiah. uh, And again, Hananiah, if you look at the end of the word Hananiah, I-A-H, Uh, It's a shortened form of Y-A-H, which was uh, shortened form of Yahweh, which was a Hebrew name for God. You know, Yahweh. They didn't want to pronounce his name, and so they would use all the vowels. Uh, I mean, they would leave the vowels out and use all the consonants. And so Hananiah means God is gracious, or God is a gift. Uh, God is gracious, okay? And uh, again, abbreviation for God's name. Well, they changed his name to Shadrach, which means illumined by Shad. Shad was a sun god of the Babylonians, a sun god, illumined by Shad, Shadrach. Uh, The next guy, Mishael, again, E-L at the end of his name, meant who's like God. It was a reference to the awesomeness of God, how great God really is. Who is like God? And so they changed his name uh, to uh, Mishak, which means um, who is like Aku. Aku was another Babylonian god, and it was a love god a sex goddess, who is like the sex god of the Babylonians, right? And then the last one was Azariah, and again, Y-A-H at the end, uh, which means God is my helper. God is there for me. God is my helper. And they changed his name to Abednego, and, um, which means servant of Nago, which was another god of the Babylonians, which was a fire god. Now, I want you to notice something. It's pretty subtle here. You don't pick it up unless you think about it. But the effort was made to move these people from monotheism, where there is only one God, right, to polytheism, where there's a lot of gods, and you choose which God you're going to serve. One God, the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus, the Father of Jesus Christ, and so forth, monotheism. And all four of those names that were given to those four kids in Hebrew are just different aspects of this monotheistic God, of our God, right? Our God is gracious, and he is the judge, and he is awesome, and he is a protector, and he is a provider, and so forth. There were just four different aspects of the one God. But when they changed the names, notice notice what's done. It's exactly what Paul said in Romans. The people will stop worshiping the creator and start worshiping the creation. And so they tried to make gods out of the sun, out of sex, out of fire they're all created things and they were the gods of the babylonians and that's why again you know the city of jerusalem and the city of babylon are diametrically opposed all the way through the scriptures uh all the way from genesis all the way to revelation and so i just think it's really interesting these four guys We're all from the tribe of Judah which is very significant because in Genesis chapter 49 we read that the Messiah the savior of the world will come from the tribe of Judah it's the kingly he will be the king of the world someday and that's part of you know what prophecy tells us and it's a reason for our optimistic hopefulness and so forth so verse 8 you'll notice uh, so the king had this idea we're going to give him the food and the wine and so forth Uh, verse 8 says but Daniel resolved resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. And therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, verse 8, it's, it's very significant, right? I think this verse 8, um, changing Daniel's name did not change his character. Changing Daniel's name did not change his character or cause him to move away from the God that he knew. Uh, The king's food was probably dedicated to idols, to pagan idols, and eating it would ceremonially defile uh, Daniel. And so he knew this. You can read about it, Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. Uh, But you notice that, first of all, Daniel resolved. He made a decision in his heart what he was going to do or not do. He decided in his heart he wasn't going to defile himself. Remember, uh, we said that people today are either controlled by circumstances or by convictions you will make decisions either on the basis of circumstances in your life or you'll have some convictions. And you'll make your decisions on the basis of those convictions. Well, Daniel had some convictions. And it's pretty interesting, it seems to me. He was willing to live in a foreign land, Daniel. He didn't have much choice, but that wasn't a big deal. He was willing to serve a foreign king. Uh, He was willing to have his name changed, but he wasn't willing to eat the food that was offered to idols. Why? Why? Why did he draw the line there? Well, because in the scriptures, there's no prohibition against living in another land or serving a king, a pagan king, or changing your name. But there is a prohibition in the scriptures about eating food offered to idols. And that's where Daniel drew the line. He knew the word of God. And he knew it, you know, by the time he was 15. And uh, Daniel was willing to do those other things. But when it came to this, he wasn't going to do it. And so um, he was committed to obeying God's word. And so another uh, interesting thing about that verse is how smart is this kid for a teenager? He doesn't rebel. He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. Look what he does. And, and he says, um, I'm not going you know, to defile myself. And so he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him. He asks this guy to allow him, very respectful of authority, right? It's one thing if if we're going to focus on young people and bring them up. Part of the thing about being a young person is to be humble and to be teachable and to be respectful so that they can learn. And Daniel was all those things. And here's a demonstration of it. He didn't just say, no, I'm not going to eat that food, man. I can't do that. It's against my religion. You know, too bad for you. No. And not only that, you know, this guy, this chief guy who's in charge of all of this, he's in a tough spot. He's, he's in what we call today middle management, right? Anybody serving middle management? That's real, always a tough job. Middle management, you know, you got the boss telling you what to do, and then you got to make it happen down here. And you're in the middle. It's a really tough place to be all the time. So here's the boss, the king, saying, you know, you feed those kids these things. And, and here's the kid saying, you know what, it'll defile me. I don't want to do it. And well, what's this guy going to do? So he gets a little nervous. Verse 9, um, it's pretty interesting. Again, verse 9, it says, um, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. It doesn't say that Daniel won the guy's favor. It says that God gave favor To Daniel in this situation, right, in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, and uh, the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, hey, um, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you're going to be in worse condition than all the other youths, you know, your own age, so that you would endanger my head, like the king's going to cut my head off for going against his order, middle management, right, This guy's afraid of losing his head. And, uh, you know, uh, in that part of the world, uh, people like the people of ISIS are still cutting people's heads off. That's the way they dealt with rebellion. And they're still doing it today. Okay? And so this guy is nervous, like, I'm going to lose my life over this. You know, I fear the king. I'm scared to death. Um, And and so on. And so Daniel says to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Uh, Well, how about this? Test your servants. Daniel's got a plan. He's got an alternative. He's got a way out for the guy in authority. That's pretty cool, right? This is going to be a three-year test. And Daniel's like, hey, uh, how about this? Why don't you test your servants for like 10 days? Just give us 10 days. Just give us 10 days. What time is it here? Oh, my goodness. Never mind. You know how this works out, right? Let me just read the rest of this. Uh, Then let our appearance... You know, and the appearance of the other kids uh, who eat the king's food be observed by you and uh, deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he listened to them in this matter. He tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, uh, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the other youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and their wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables and water and so on. Oh, we don't have time. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, your word is just so rich and so meaningful, and I pray that as we unfold uh, the book of Daniel together this summer, uh, that you will speak to us, Father, at the core of our being, and you'll help us uh, to be more like Daniel, that we'll be challenged, that he recognized that you're sovereign, you're in control. I don't know that we always recognize that you're in control in the situations in our life. Even when he was deported and taken away from his family and his friends and his school and everything else, and in a foreign, strange land where he couldn't even understand the language and all the rest that would come with something like that, he knew that you were in control. And some of us, Father, even when the slightest thing happens to us, we think that you're not in control. But teach us, Father, that you are in control and uh, that we can respond in the ways that you've taught us over the years and that you will protect us. And so give us wisdom, Father, as we unpack these scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to ask our ushers now to come wait on us as uh, we continue to worship by singing one more song this morning. I'm sorry, I went too long.